0: The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark.
1: In 1812, the British Prime Minister, Spencer Percival, was assassinated in the lobby of the House of Commons by a man called John Bellingham. Mr. Bellingham believed he had been the victim of a foreign injustice and that the government should compensate him for it. You can hear a little bit more about the Prime Minister's assassination in our summer entertainment from last year, the prisoner of Windsor over in Tales for Our Time. But in the two centuries since the murder of Mr. Percival, eight Other Members of Parliament have been killed. Until five years ago, all of them... All of them were the victims of Irish terrorism, from the murder of Lord Frederick Cavendish at Phoenix Park in Dublin in 1882, to the murder of Mrs Thatcher's loyal friend Ian Gow in the driveway of his home in 1990. The Irish question was the great bedeviling issue of domestic politics for most of that time, and it is not unreasonable to say that without it there would have been no parliamentary assassinations in the United Kingdom for the two centuries after Spencer Percival's shooting. And thus, to have two MPs murdered in the last five years might then have disquieted Britons more than it has. In 2016, on the eve of Brexit, the Labour MP Joe Cox was killed by a man of the so-called far right. On Friday, Sir David Amos a Tory MP, was stabbed to death by a, quote, British national, which in this particular instance apparently means a Somali man. Just as a couple of years back, my chums at the Irish Times attributed the stabbing of six people in a London square to a, quote, Norwegian national, who turned out to be, oh, go on, take a wild guess. Yes, another excitable Somali chappy. The media and politicians have made an attempt to, Uh, these last 24 hours to link the two most recent parliamentary murders as a trend. Both Joe Cox and Sir David were killed at what they call constituency surgeries, when members meet with local townsfolk in a church hall or some such uh, to deal with their various problems and issues. So we get assertions that being a politician is more dangerous than it used to be, and maybe we should have metal detectors and police security at constituency surgeries because what the Western world needs right now is a political class even more disconnected from their voters. From the BBC's political editor, Laura Koonsberg, Sir David Amos's stabbing is a tragic reminder of growing risks faced by MPs. Yes, the risks are growing. Any reason for that? Or are we just going to put on sorrowful faces when we're tragically reminded? These limp Passive, evasive phrases are the language of a dead and dishonest public discourse. So David will certainly not be known to our American listeners, but you may have seen his actress daughter, Katie Amos, in Captain America, Civil War. One of those idiotic superhero movies that Hollywood relies on uh, to absolve it of the need to tell stories about anything real. We will come back to the lies we tell ourselves at the end of this show, but they are by no means confined to motion pictures. The mayor of London, Sadiq Khan's initial reaction to news of Friday's murder was to tweet that, quote, "'I am so deeply, deeply saddened by the news that Sir David has passed away.'" Yes, it's always sad when someone passes away by having a blade plunged into his chest, just as it was deeply, deeply sad when President Kennedy passed away while motoring through Dallas, and deeply, deeply, deeply sad when Daniel Pearl passed away while taking part in a short homemade video in Pakistan. Thus, the commentariats need to connect this murder with that of Joe Cox, as opposed to say that Somali, uh, sorry, Norwegian knife attack in Russell Square. Parliamentary murder-wise, the century of Irish Republican assassinations may prove the more relevant precedent, with the obvious difference that this new bedeviling problem has been consciously imported from the other side of the world. Nevertheless, among the great toll of Islamic terror, this is the jihad's first UK Member of Parliament. Does anyone seriously think he will be the last... As the aforementioned Sadiq Khan has said, occasionally being stabbed or run over or blown up by a fellow yelling "Allahu Akbar is just part of the price of living in a great, vibrant, diverse world city. The Prime Minister and a few other important fellows will be able to insulate themselves, but for everyone else, there will be occasional bloody convulsions such as Fridays. And the state's position will be no more than a vague hope that as a cynical civil servant put it at the height of the IRA terror campaign, it can be held to, quote, an acceptable level of violence. There is a correlation between increased diversity and reduced liberty. When you celebrate as much diversity as contemporary Britain, you need a bigger and more intrusive state to mediate the various jostling identity groups, and ancient liberties have to be reined in lest people keep pointing out the obvious, in this case the suicidal imprudence of public policy. The non-diverse states that were until recently the norm in the functioning parts of the world could afford the one diversity that matters, diversity of thought, because their citizens were all Swedes or Slovenes or whatever. But diversity of identities ensures less and less diversity of thought, and indeed eventually a kind of prohibition against any kind of thinking at all. A man is murdered in front of multiple witnesses in broad daylight, but it takes hours for the salient facts about his assassin to be made public. And in all the rolling news coverage that follows, very rarely is the underlying reality honestly confronted. Easier to pretend that Sir David passed away from a tragic event, unconnected to anything other than vaguely growing risks. The MP's killer may possibly have links to abstract nouns such as extremism. After Spencer Percival, it was 70 years before another member of Parliament was assassinated. Lord Frederick Cavendish, a protégé of Gladstone, whom the old man made Chief Secretary of Ireland. He arrived in Dublin in the morning, took his oath with the Lord Lieutenant in Dublin Castle, and was dead hours later, stabbed to death with surgical instruments while strolling in Phoenix Park. The government later set up the so-called Parnell Commission to investigate whether prominent Irish MPs, such as the member for Cork, Charles Parnell, had winked at political violence. And uh, they eventually uh, acquitted them in what Rudyard Kipling considered to be an outrageous whitewash. So he wrote a poem about it. And to set aside uh, the Home Rule context and all the rest from the late 19th century, the last line increasingly strikes me as more applicable to our own time uh, than to Kipling's. Here are a couple of the final stanzas. My soul I'd sooner lie in jail for murder, plain and straight. Pure crime I'd done with my own hand for money, lust or hate. Then take a seat in Parliament, by fellow felons, cheered, while one of those not proven's proved me cleared as you are cleared. If black is black or white is white, in black and white it's down. You're only traitors to the Queen and rebels to the Crown. If print is print or words are words, the learned court perpends. We are not ruled by murderers, but only by their friends. We are not ruled by murderers, but only by their friends. It can feel a bit like that, can't it? Ultimately, our political classes are, if not quite explicitly the friends... At least the enablers of Sir David Amos's murderer, of the Scandinavian Muslim revert who killed four women and a man with a bow and arrow on Wednesday, of the sex fiend, quote, refugees imported to Germany, the so-called grooming gangs in northern England, the child sex slavers at America's southern border, the importers of Chinese fentanyl, and exporters of American jobs. We are not ruled by murderers, but only by their conniving friends.
0: Keep up to date with the past on the Hundred Years Ago show with Mark Stein.
1: A blue boy on the auction block, a babe in Buffalo, and the queen who launched the War of the Golden Stool. It's October
2: 1921. A hundred years from today.
1: For World News Update, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues. The League of Nations has reached a decision on the division of Upper Silesia between Poland and Germany, but is, for the moment... Not revealing what that decision is. The Treaty of Kars has been signed between the Grand National Assembly of Turkey and the new states of the South Caucasus, establishing the borders between Turkey and the Soviet Socialist Republics of Armenia, Azerbaijan and Georgia. In contradiction to the new song Rio Nights, Brazil continues to be roiled by the crisis in the coffee industry. President Epitathio Pessoa has addressed the Brazilian Congress and told them the irregularity of crop yields and the cost of storage at Brazilian ports means the coffee sector requires new institutions. Peace talks have opened in London between His Majesty's Government and Irish Republicans. Prime Minister lloyd George. The Lord Chancellor, Lord Birkenhead, the Chief Secretary for Ireland, Sir Hamar Greenwood, Colonial Secretary, Mr Winston Churchill, War Secretary, Sir Laming Worthington-Evans and the Attorney General, Sir Gordon Hewitt, are the negotiators on the government side and Arthur Griffith, Michael Collins, R.C. Barton, E.J. Duggan and Gavin Duffy are the representatives of the so-called Irish Republic.
2: Found them ready at the staring of Let not fear that to their hardships as the soldiers pass along. And although your heart is breaking, may
1: So many of those boys did not come home and for some of them no name can be put to their final resting place. In the United States, Congress has voted to bestow America's highest award for valour, the Medal of Honour, upon the unidentified British soldier interred in the tomb of the unknown warrior in London. In turn, King George V has announced that on Armistice Day next month, the unknown soldier selected by the United States to rest in Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia will receive the British Empire's highest award, the Victoria Cross. By a margin of only four votes, the US House of Representatives has narrowly rejected a proposal by Congressman Isaac Siegel of New York to increase the number of seats from 435 to 460. An alternative scheme offered by Congressman Tinkham of Massachusetts would have reduced the number of representatives from 435 to 425, with the apportionment being based on the number of registered voters in a state rather than its population, the intention being to deter southern states from the disenfranchisement of Negro voters by exacting a price of diminished representation for those states in Congress. The Tinkham proposal, which would have taken 33 seats away from those southern states with literacy tests and poll taxes and the like, was rejected overwhelmingly. The Blue Boy is the most famous work by Thomas Gainsborough. Painted in 1770, it shows the eponymous azure lad in garb of a century earlier, as the artist's homage to Van Dyke. Its owner, the Duke of Westminster, put it up for sale at auction and it is now the property of Sir Joseph Duveen, the favourite art dealer of American tycoons and the man who made the famous observation that, quote, Europe has a great deal of art and America has a great deal of money. The Daily Telegraph commented rather less pithily that we have seen too much in these stressful times of that rigorous code of national taxation which has shaken the foundations of private ownership in inherited lands and treasures. Some relief may be derived from the fact that it is the generous want of American millionaires to leave their spoils of European art treasures to public galleries. Sir Joseph bid $170,000 for the Blue Boy, and also bought Sir Joshua Reynolds' painting Sarah Siddons as the Tragic Muse for an additional £30,000 after the Duke of Westminster had declined to sell the Blue Boy by itself for a mere £150,000. me out
2: to the ball game. me out with the crowd. Oh, buy me some peanuts and, crack and I don't care if I never get back, let me root, root, root for the whole team. If they don't win, it's a shame, for it's one, two, three, right, you're out at the old ball game.
1: In sports news, the New York Giants have defeated the New York Yankees to win the 1921 World Series by five games to three. Immediately after the eighth and final game, baseball commissioner Kennesaw Landis announced that he would be asking club owners to change the current best five of nine format to the best four of seven. Commissioner Landis also threatened several leading baseball stars with suspension, including the world's highest paid player, Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth ignored the threat and went ahead and appeared in an unauthorized exhibition game between a team featuring such revered New York Yankees as Bob Musel and Bill Piercy, and a team calling itself the Polish Nationals of Buffalo. Babe Ruth hit one home run and his team beat the Poles 4-2. to Senator Philander C. Knox of Pennsylvania was a former Secretary of State and Attorney General who later played a key role in the U.S. Senate's rejection of the Treaty of Versailles. He thought he would be the presidential candidate the Republican Party turned to to unite its conservative and progressive wings. Instead, the nomination went to Warren Harding. Senator Knox is dead in office at the age of 68." Queen Yah Asantewa was queen mother of the Ashanti Empire in West Africa and a persistent thorn in the side of British administrators. A generation ago, Sir Frederick Hodgson, then governor of the Gold Coast, announced his intention to sit on the golden stool, the traditional royal and divine throne of the Ashanti, and thereby symbolise his governing power over them. When he arrived in Kumasi, he told the Ashanti leaders... Where is the Golden Stool? I am the representative of the paramount power. Why have you relegated me to this ordinary chair? Why did you not take the opportunity of my coming to Kamasi to bring the Golden Stool for me to sit upon? The outraged Queen Mother then told her people no foreigner could have dared to speak to a chief of the Ashanti in the way the governor spoke to you, chiefs, this morning. Is it true that the bravery of the Ashanti is no more? I cannot believe it. It cannot be. I must say this. If you, the men of Ashanti, will not go forward, then we will. We, the women, will. I shall call upon my fellow women. We will fight. We will fight till the last of us falls in the battlefields and we with that speech, Her Majesty launched the War of the Golden Stool upon Sir Frederick and British authorities. It ended with the reduction of the mighty Ashanti Empire to a mere crown colony of Great Britain and with the exile of the Queen Mother to the Seychelles in the Indian Ocean. Ya Asantewa has died there at the age of 81. And that's the way of the world. October 1921.
2: A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today.
1: This is Mark Stein on this week's Song of the Week, one of the all-time great love songs. It came from a flop show, was resurrected a decade later for a flop play, and eventually became the 32 Bars of Glue. That hold a great film together You'll know the music You'll know all the words And you'll even know the song cue We'll tell its story On Stein's Song of the Week Sunday afternoon at 5.30 On Serenade Radio And 5.30pm UK time is half past noon on the East Coast, 9.30am on the West Coast, so a Sunday brunchy kind of show in the Americas. Hope you'll join me. Mark's Mailbox is on the air on Thursday's Clubland Q&A. I made an aside uh, about uh, classical music and the increasing dominance of Chinese players and uh, several club members commented on that. One did so under the norm de plume of chicken soup and said, I disagree about the Chinese and classical Western music. I think that the Chinese recognize the value of this music and the value of learning to play Western instruments. Also, classical music performance is a tried and true way to lift out of poverty. New York Jews at the turn of the 20th century come to mind. And Michelle Dulac added uh, that she agreed with um, chicken soup. Uh, Michelle says, Chinese, generally Chinese American, and many are actually Taiwanese American, classical musicians in the US are lumped in with Korean Americans and Japanese Americans. They are not imitative. And it's absurd to say that because their ancestral cultures don't run to symphonies and concertos, they're only aping Western musicians. I don't actually think I... Uh, Said any of this. I wasn't talking about Chinese American or Taiwanese American. This is a global phenomenon. Uh, You know, if you go to uh, London or if you go to Europe and you go and see a symphony orchestra, you will see far more Chinese players in those orchestras than you would have a generation ago. But I was actually talking about Chinese. Uh, musicians in China in the context of the Chinese school system. Uh, and I contrasted it with my own children's woeful experience where they were just being taught to say everything. Everything I ever saw of my kids was as if they would just entered kindergarten, you know, crap sing-alongs of stupid boomer boomer jingles i mean i can't i can't believe how awful it was and it's actually an act of child abuse because to to a Appreciate classical music. To appreciate the greatest music ever written is part of what it means to be a civilized human being. And I know that if I were to say uh, that at NASCAR, everybody would throw stale Twinkies at me. But it happens to be true. You can't knock away all the pillars of the civilization accumulated over centuries and then wonder why you're in the hell of the crapped out state you're in. Um, and I was talking about this in the in the context of uh, musical education. I had two very good music uh, teachers when i was at school one a very great and distinguished organist and the other a somewhat more mercurial character uh, but one who did actually communicate to us a great appreciation of the greatest music ever written it's very hard it's very difficult uh, to uh, to do that if you if by the time you're out of 12th grade You haven't actually learned anything about the great Western music tradition. So I wasn't talking. I wasn't – when I said that the Chinese hadn't written any symphonies and concertos, as you know, I also pointed out that we don't write symphonies and and concertos anymore and we don't make operas anymore and we don't write string quartets anymore anymore. Um, so that we've lost, we've lost our own inheritance, and I contrasted that with the Chinese limitation in that they are increasingly the best performers of our inheritance, which again is a sign of a dying civilization. Um, but I certainly didn't intend to. I, I find it sad. I find it sad. Uh, that uh, the Chinese appreciate. I, th- I completely agree when uh, Chicken Soup says the Chinese recognize the value of this music. We don't. But I did it in the context of an illustration of what is sick about our education system. We're falling behind. You can't be, again, we're running on fumes. You can't be, the expect to remain the world's dominant power when you abuse your own human capital, which is, after all, what a society is. So if you have care of your children uh, from five to 18 or whatever it is now in American schools and you just your priority is to teach them how to be non-binary, you're abusing those children and the American public education system, which... Very uh, probably should be entirely raised to the ground and rebuilt from scratch. Uh, is, uh, is 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 uh, to use that tired uh, English cliché not fit for purpose? The the it does not. It 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 is no wonder that there is no appreciation of the glories of our civilization by people who have spent twenty years in that crappy system. And again, I'm talking about it in the context of who's going to win the future. And one small sign of who's going to win the future is that uh, Chinese uh, school students and Chinese teachers, which means the Chinese state, values Western music more than America and the West does. That's a disgrace. It's a great mark of shame, and it's greatly to the credit of uh, China that it recognizes the value of that, even as it crushes us into the dust.
0: Mark Stein's Last Call.
1: We usually do deaths in this final section of the show, but today's is really about the death of a fictional character. I don't know whether it's the death of what the movie Wallers call a franchise, uh, but it probably ought to be. As I said on Thursday's Clubland Q&A, the new 007 film is a stinker and is certainly the death of anything about the cinematic James Bond that would have been recognisable to his creator. Ian Fleming's Bond is fussy in his his habits that's all the vodka martini shaken not stirred stuff uh but also also the dress too daniel craig runs around as an unshaven yob uh for most of this ludicrous three-hour yawn fest we're told that this makes him more quote serious than previous bonds but in fact this is the least serious bond ever you want to know why well, among Beijing's many other victories over the West of late is this bleak statistic. In 2020, China became the world's number one movie market, a long expected development Uh, Accelerated supposedly by the COVID, according to alleged industry insiders. So China's total box office was just below $2 billion, beating out the US and Canada with $1.9 billion between them. Expect this gap to widen. So if, like most oblivious citizens of a dying West, you're a consumer of crap multinational pop culture, well, as with your clothes, as with your... Household appliances, as with your furniture, as with your laptop and smartphone, as with your medicines and COVID masks, China now makes your stories. For purposes of comparison, imagine what kind of stories we would have got during the Cold War if the Soviet Union was then the world's biggest movie market. At any rate, the planet's most enduring and iconic secret agent is now too craven to say anything that might discombobulate his Chinese paymaster. So we have a three-hour plot that is complicated without being about anything, a film that is self-important without being serious, a humorless plonker of a hero, and a villain who's all that's left when you can't talk about any of the real villainy in the world. That's to say he is bad skin. I'm surprised some woke pressure group for the differently complected hasn't objected to all this pitiful pockmarkophobia. I loathed No Time to Die. It's what happens when you have all the money but nothing to say and you're running on the fumes of an Aston Martin long out of gas. And at the end... Just to confirm that, the credits rolled and for the very first time in six decades, we had a repurposed Bond song, a reprise. First heard in On Her Majesty's Secret Service and pressed into service once more, half a century later, to compensate for a silly Billie Eilish song, two years past its sell-by date over the opening titles, Here's the closing song of No Time To Die.
3: We have all the time in the world time enough for life to unfold all the precious things love has
1: Words by Hal David of uh, Bacharach and David and music by John Barry, the man who gave 007 his sound. The music was a particular distinction of the Bond franchise, as you'll know if you heard me and my guests on Serenade Radio a couple of weeks back. For No Time to Die, Barbara Broccoli signed Hans Zimmer. Composer for Pirates of the Caribbean, The Dark Knight Returns, etc., etc. And Hans Zimmer turned in one of those orchestration-by-the-yard scores that sounds like every other movie, which is one thing the Bond films didn't do. Zimmer is such an insipid incompetent, he can't even do anything with the famous 007 theme, which is heard perfunctorily, presumably because Zimmer doesn't want it to show up his own generic crap. So I thought maybe you'd like to hear a little bit about that song we have all the time in the world as it was used 50-something years back in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Here am I chewing it over with the man who succeeded John Barry as 007's music man, the composer of Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough, Die Another Day, Casino Royale*, and Quantum of Solace, David Arnold. about um, we have all the time in the world, David, because that, that's in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And again, I remember this one uh, that he wrote with Hal David. Uh, Louis Armstrong sang it. And I think uh, just, for that, just for that reason, uh, John was quite fond of it.
4: Well I I think it was the last thing that Louis Armstrong ever recorded and I think he was dead within sort of three or four weeks of, of of recording it as well. Uh and and John always was spoke so affectionately about that recording session because I think Louis Armstrong was a was a huge uh influence on him obviously he appreciated his you know the creativity of the man but the the style as well and the the trumpet playing which of course is where John started with with playing trumpet and uh it was one of those it was a funny thing is it's the only time in a Bond movie we've had a montage I think you know right. a song in the movie rather than an opening title sequence I don't think it's ever happened before and it hasn't happened since where the film stops and, and sits fairly and squarely on the shoulders of this song
3: We have all the time in the world time enough for life
4: Uh, the film is carried by the song there's very very little sound uh, and of course it was you know, extremely poignant moment, the only time that James Bond meets someone who he actually genuinely falls in love with uh, and ends up marrying and of course subsequently losing so um, uh, the sort of piquancy of that was uh, ex- extremely affecting um, and the fact that you were allowed to enjoy it
3: Every step I'll- only love
1: One of the most unusual John Barry songs for 007, Mr. and Mrs. James Bond didn't have all the time in the world, and nor did Louis Armstrong. That's a Bond moment that brought it all full circle for John Barry. When he was growing up in Yorkshire, his dad ran a chain of movie theatres. That was how John fell in love with the movies. And one day when he was a kid, Louis Armstrong came to York to make an appearance in his dad's theatre. That was me with Bond composer David Arnold. And the first thing Barbara Broccoli could do to repair the damage she has done, the first thing she should do for the next film is to bring him back. That will do it. It's The weekend of sign online. And that means Rick McGuinness at the movies, a new video poem on Sunday, because video poetry is where the big bucks are. Our Sunday song selection and our continuing tale for our time. Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey, uh, every evening. Catherine Morland would not care for daniel craig's sub hallmark emoting stay safe stay free
0: join us next time for another edition of the mark stein show The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. It's reserved.